Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. Great to see you today. I got some really good news, and that is the Boyd family now has the seventh grandchild. And uh, yep, my son Catherine and his wife gave birth on uh, Thursday to Olivia Jane. And uh, I don't know all the stats, but, and I messed them all up in the first service, and Karen was in that service to correct me, but I think she was seven pounds, four ounces, just a little tiny thing. And so we are very excited uh, about welcoming her into our family and very excited for my son and his wife. This is their first child, so very excited about that. Uh, if this is your first time uh, worshiping with us, this is a great time uh, to, be, to be here because we're starting a new summer sermon series, uh, and it's entitled, Here is Your God, and it's a series in which we'll be attempting to answer the question, what is God like? What is God like? Is, is, that, is that even something we can know? What's he really like? Now, back in the winter and spring, we worked our way through the Old Testament books of Judges and Ruth. And by the way, if you attend here on a regular basis, what you'll find is that most Sunday mornings, we're studying our way through whole books of the Bible. But usually in the summers, we'll do a more topical series like this one we're starting today on the attributes of God. But anyway, um, uh, back when we were working our way through Judges, I did a message entitled, Distorted Images of God, and I was so taken by how important it is for a Christ follower to have a big, biblically accurate picture of God that we scrapped what we were going to do this summer, and, and, and we um, wanted to take time to think about how we think about God. And if you were here for that series and you heard that message, you remember I quoted from a man uh, named A.W. Tozier, who wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy, which is a main resource that we're using this summer, and I'll quote Tozier all the way through, and I got him a couple more times here, but Tozier said, this is my paraphrase, but Tozier said, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. And how you think about God, well, wow, we live in a world where there's all kinds of people that have think all kinds of different things about God. And we live in a time where we can't assume that when we say God or when we hear somebody else say God, that that, that means the same thing for different people. Like back in that series, I, I set up this little scenario like this what if, like what if you went downtown Greenville and you stopped 15 different people on the street and you ask them, uh, what is God like? Um, and, 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 you know, I, I'm sure you get a bunch of different answers. After the, after the answer, well, I don't believe in God, uh, you might hear something like, well, God is like the force in, in Star Wars. He's like the animating energy of the universe. Or you might hear somebody say, well, God is all around us. He's in everything. Or someone might say, well, God is inside every one of us. We're all we all have that divine spark. Or if you stop someone from a Hindu background, they would go, well, there's not just one God, there's thousands of gods. Or someone might say, well, I think God is angry and he's demanding. Uh, or God is like a kind old grandfather. He just wants me to be happy. Or God's like a divine clockmaker and he created everything like a clock. He wound it all up and he's just letting it run down on its own. Or somebody might say, well, why do you keep using the masculine pronoun he? I think of God as a she, or maybe even gender neutral. I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you ask 15 different people, 15 different people come up with all kinds of different answers. 
But even in the church today, different Christ followers sometimes give answers, uh, different answers to the question, what is God like? In fact, I bet you might be surprised at the kind of answers we would, uh, would come up here uh, when we start talking about our own personal images of God, because many of us tend to emphasize one way of looking at God over the other attributes of God. Like, we'll usually answer the question, what's God, God like, in, in terms of what's most important to us. For example, if I ask you, what is God like, and, and the first thing you say, well, God is God Almighty. I mean, he's immortal, he's invisible, he's all-powerful. Then, then in your construction of God, power wins. Or if you answer, well, God is, is love, my God's a loving God, then love wins. And if I were to say, well, yeah, that's true, but Scripture also talks about God being a God of wrath and judgment, what about that? You might say, well, no, 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 not my God. My God is a loving God. He's not like that. Then, you know, you see, love wins. Or maybe you're just the opposite. Maybe you say that God's a God of wrath and judgment. He's a judging God. And if I say, well, what about grace? What about forgiveness? And you retort, well, yeah, but he's holy and he'll judge you. Then that God of wrath and judgment wins. However you answer the question, what is God like? Usually the first thing out of your mouth is something that is important to you. You, you with me? Like even among Christians, you'll find different personal images of God some of which are distorted images of God, depending on what we've been taught or what we may have gone through or uh, like, like I'm talking about here, a single attribute of God that we emphasize more than others because that attribute is, is uh, most important to us. We kind of build uh, our own idea, our own image of God out of that. You remember that, that uh, Build-A-Bear craze that re hit really big back in the 1990s? Well, I mean, there's Build-A-Bear stores that are still around. I think there's one over in the Haywood Mall. But uh, this is a store where you go and you build your own little teddy bear or monkey or unicorn or puppy or whatever, but most people build a bear. How many of you have done this with one of your children or grandchild? Okay, lots of you. You know the drill. You know the drill. You go to the store and it has all of these these bins of bears, and those bears in the bins are just bear skins. This is not Dr. Seuss, but I just <laughs> discovered that that rhymes. But so you choose the bear skin you want, and then you build the bear to fit your personality. Like uh, one of the most important things is you pick up a heart and you put the heart up to your ear so the bear will listen to you, and then you kiss the heart so the bear will love you. And then you give the heart to a worker in the store. And let's just call her Sarah because it's Sarah's a lot easier to say than the worker in the store every time. So Sarah sews up your little bear and she puts the, well, before she does that, she puts the little warm fuzzy heart inside and uh, she sews it up and then um, you, you, know, you have your, your bear. And so there's these, all these kids with the bears that Sarah has helped out with. And I, if it was me, I would do the monkey. I wouldn't do a little teddy bear. I'm, I'm a monkey guy. So anyway, then you're not done. You're not done because you got to spend about $1,500 on, on clothes. <laughs> so you, you go dress the bear. You go dress the bear, and they have all of these racks and racks of all kinds of clothes, and you dress the, <clears throat> dress the bear according to your liking. 
I, I, I don't know if you've discovered this, but I discovered that you can use many of these outfits to dress your small dogs. <laughs> I don't know why I put that in there. I just thought it was funny. But now, of course, of course, if it were me, I'd dress my bear like this. Yeah. Or, you know, on away game days, I would dress the bear like this in white. So, but anyway, after you have built your bear, I hear that ooh over there. But um, after you built your bear, you name the bear, you get a bear certificate. So you go to the Build-A-Bear store, what do you want? I want a bear that looks like this. Uh, this is what it would look like if you were in a dark closet. Okay, so uh, it, it's, it's gonna look like what you would wanna build. <laughs> now, uh, in other words, when you build a bear, you want it to look a certain way. You want it to look like, like, like what you want. I think, I think we can have that same, well, it's not a problem with a bear, but it's a problem when you do it with God. We kind of build a God out of what's most important to us. Like, this is what my God is like. My God is like this. But when we do that, we're making God after our own image, which is a distorted image of God. Build a bear, build a God. So what is God really like? What does scripture say about what God is like? And that's the question that we're attempting to answer in this summer series, Here is Your God. Here is Your God. Now, in church history, this is a study of the attributes of God. In church history, when people talk about and write about what's God like, it's traditionally referred to as a study of the attributes of God. So what is an attribute of God? Well, go back to Tozier, who wrote the book on it. Uh, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, Tozier defines an attribute this way. An attribute of God is whatever God has in any way revealed as being true of himself. And when he says in any way, he means God has revealed himself in creation. God has revealed himself in scripture. God has real, revealed himself in our savior, Jesus. So an attribute to God is whatever God has in any way revealed as being true of himself. An attribute is not a part of God, it's how God is. He's not more of one attribute than another. He doesn't possess attributes as qualities. The attributes of God are how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. For, for, for example, love is not something that God has, not something which increases or decreases or ceases to be, Love is the way God is, and when he loves, God is simply being himself. And the same thing is true of all of God's attributes. God's holy, God's sovereign, God's gracious, God's merciful, God is just, God is true, God is all-knowing, God is all-powerful, God is eternal, God is unchanging. He's not more of one than another. He's all of those things and more all at the same time. So God's love and wrath and justice and holiness and gentleness are continually functioning in a perfectly integrated way, yet it's an infinitely complex way. He's not more of one attribute than another. Uh, so that's what we're going to look at this at the summer. Now, here's where we're going to start. And, the, and this is the very first thing you need to know. This is foundational. You need to fully embrace the fact that God is not like us. 
God is not like us. That is foundational. He is not like us. God is not like anything we've ever seen or come into contact with. He's not like us at all because everything we see or hear or touch is created. It's natural. God is above all things that are natural because God created all things. He's supernatural. So he doesn't look like us. He doesn't think like us. He doesn't act like the, uh, us. And, and that being true means he is incomprehensible. There are things about God we simply cannot know because he's God, for goodness sake. Plus the fact there are things that in his wisdom God has chosen not to reveal to us about himself. I know, I know, yes, God has made you in his image. He's made us in his image. But that doesn't mean that God looks exactly like you and thinks exactly like you and acts exactly like you would. God's not like us. And so there's this paradox uh, to God. Like, Scripture calls us to know a God who is unknowable. We're invited to seek to know God, but we have to accept the fact that there are some things about God that we'll never know, never be able to fully understand because he's incomprehensible. This is the starting point for knowing God, knowing that he's beyond knowing, beyond understanding, beyond explaining. If we could actually see him, he would be beyond our ability to describe. Now, it's interesting in the Bible, whenever you come to a passage where somebody comes face to face uh, with a manifestation of God, like with the glory of his majesty. Those people can't understand what they're looking at. They don't know what to say. They're at a loss for words. They can't describe what they're see say, uh, uh, seeing. And I want to show you that. So take your Bible and turn to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1. Now, I know Ezekiel is one of the places in the Bible that you love to have your devotional time, so it's going to be easy for you to find. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, then Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, Lamentation, Ezekiel, or just go to your table of contents. Ezekiel chapter 1. Now, Ezekiel is a Jewish prophet, and in chapter 1, he's, he's kind of like been transported, like in a vision, and he comes into like this throne area of God, and it's just an amazing fantastic chapter. And Ezekiel 1, he's trying to describe what he's seeing and experiencing, and it's awesome. It's, a, it's amazing. It's actually indescribable. So follow along as I read, or just close your eyes and see if you can imagine seeing what he's seeing. Chapter 1, verse 22, he's just described these very odd creatures around the throne of God. And then he says in verse 22, over the head of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, like, like another sky, shining like an awe-inspiring crystal spread out over their heads, above their heads, the living creatures. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another, and each creature had two wings covering his body. And, and, and when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like, like the sound of a waterfall, like rushing waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of a marching army. 
And, and when they stood still, they lowered their wings and there came a voice from above the expanse of their head. And when they stood still, they let down their wings. Oh, yeah, yeah I just said that, yeah. Uh, I'll say it again. So above the expanse over their heads, there was this likeness of a, like a throne in appearance, like a sapphire in it. And then seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness of a, like a human, like had a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, it looked like his waist, it kind of, it just, and it kind of looked like gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what seemed to be his waist, I saw as it was the appearance of fire. And there was the brightness all around, like the appearance of a rainbow that's in a cloud on the day of rain. So, so, and so was the appearance of brightness all around. And such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell down. I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. And then he goes into the narrative portion of the, of the book in chapter two. Ezekiel sees this amazing vision of the glory of God and he cannot get his mind around what he's seeing. Now turn with me all the way to the back of your Bible Turn to the book of Revelation. So go to the book of maps and then come, then turn east. You know, come back east. Revelation, and, and we're going to read about somebody else <clears throat> who comes face to face with God. And, that he, as he, and, he, and he also writes about what he has seen. He's told to write it down. And uh, so this is the apostle John writing this. He sees a vision of God. Revelation 1.9. I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom... Uh, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was, I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a, a trumpet saying, write down what you see in the book and send it to the seven churches of Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamon and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, like a human. Echo of Ezekiel. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like, like, like white wool, like, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like... like uh, burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of rushing waters echo of Ezekiel in his right hand he held seven stars from his mouth came a, a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength echo of Ezekiel and when I saw him I fell at his feet as though dead but he laid his hand on me and said, fear not for I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after that. And that's kind of a uh, outline for the book of Revelation right there. So it's, it's amazing. These, these two guys, Ezekiel and John, they, they see this amazing vision of, of, of God and I want you to notice two things from both of these passages. The first thing is that when these two men, Ezekiel and John, when they see this manifestation of the glory of God, they, they're completely blown away. 
They have no words, really, for what they're seeing. They have no categories for what they're seeing. Like, they're not seeing fire. What they see is like fire. And they're not hearing the sound of a rushing waterfall. They, they are, it's, it's like a rushing waterfall. They're grappling for words. And all through this, these passages, the emphasis is on the word, uh, uh, it's like this. It was like that. It had the appearance of this. And it was like, as it were, it was kind of, you know, they have no words. They have no categories. Now, when we think about God, when you and I think about God, you, we have to have ways of thinking of God. He's like this. He's like that. But we've got to be careful I'm going to, when we describe what God is like, I'm going to quote Tozier again. He says, and this is so good, he says, when we try to imagine what God is like, we must of necessity use that which is not God as the raw material for our minds to work on. Hence, whatever we visualize God to be, he is not. For we have built our image of God out of that which he's made, and what he's made is not God. And if we insist upon trying to imagine him, we end up with an idol not made with hands but with thought. And an idol of the mind is as offensive to God as an idol of the hand. Mm. What is God like? He's not like anything we see in this world, not like anything that we can imagine. God is always infinitely more than our best attempts to describe him. Second observation from these two passages what is the response of the person who sees a manifestation of the glory of God? What's the response? What does Ezekiel do? He falls down. What does John do? He falls down. Thinks he's like and frozen, like he's like dead. God is so mind-blowingly incredible that if we were to see him, we would automatically fall down before him, overcome by his incomprehensible greatness and awesomeness. Like if, um, if I all of a sudden said, oh, look, Tom Brady just walked in the back doors. Nobody looked. I, I thought that I was going to be able to say, made you look. Uh, anyway, Tom Brady, or, or maybe it's Tiger Woods or Paul McCartney or, Bo, or Bono or Ed Sheeran or Denzel Washington. If they walked through the back door, we would all turn our heads and look and our eyes would get really big and wide. And then some of us would run over to try to get an autograph. Like if Queen Elizabeth walked in the back door and with her whole entourage. I imagine that most of us would stand out of respect for her uh, and, and, and out of honor. And somebody, you know, little kids might run up and bow and curtsy and all that kind of stuff. But if we could somehow see God, we would fall down. We would fall down on our knees, fall face down on the ground before him because not because it was etiquette, not because somebody told us to, because it would be automatic. It would be this get weak in the knees experience. I remember in 2008, I think it was, that Jose and Michelle Alvarez and Karen and I spoke at a family life marriage conference uh, in Phoenix or Tucson, uh, somewhere in Arizona. And after the conference, we decided that we would... Uh, uh, drive to see the Grand Canyon, which was really cool because Karen and I had never seen the Grand Canyon, so we were very excited about going. So after the conference, we get in the car, we drive there, and uh, we get when we get there, we park the car, and we get out of the car, and we're started to head for the edge, you know, the lookout. 
And Jose stopped us and he said, now stop right here. Here's what we want you to do. We want you to close your eyes and Michelle and I will lead you by the hand to the edge and do not open your eyes till we tell you to. So that's what we did in all trust and faith in Jose. We closed our eyes and you know, like we're, we're like mummies, like we're stumbling our way up to the edge and we get there and Jose says, okay, open your eyes. And you open your eyes and I literally went, <gasps> and Karen went, <gasps> and I mean, it's like, oh my goodness. And I was like, I gotta sit down, let's take this in. This is unbelievable. And this is what we saw. There was snow on the ground and uh, here's another picture of what we saw. Now, if you've been to the Grand Canyon, you know the pictures do not do justice to what you're actually seeing. There's just no way you can, you can, you can in a picture, experience the, the magnitude, the majesty of those mountains. It is just breathtakingly beautiful. Now, by the way, uh, I think it was a couple of weeks back, Jason was talking about his trip to the Grand Canyon and he, showing off his bravery, and fearlessness, he showed us this picture of him sitting on the ledge, like, oh my goodness, aren't I something because I'm sitting on the edge. <laughs> so I thought that I would show you my daredevil Grand Canyon stunt shot. <laughs> I think we all know which one wins, right? Now, actually, I was standing on a little ledge down there, but no, no, that's not true. Okay, anyway, Seeing the Grand Canyon for the first time can take your breath away. It, it can make you gasp and say, I, I, I gotta sit down and take this in. But that's nothing, nothing compared to what it would be like to see the glory of God as Ezekiel or John saw it. Now here's the thing, I talk to God. I talk about God. I write about God. I'm a professional God person. I'm supposed to be about God. But in studying and preparing for this message, I realized I had lost some of that take your breath awayness when it comes to God. That I lost some of that fall on your face overwhelmness when it comes to God. You know, we, we, we all talk to God, we all talk about God, and we say, well, God is this, and God is that. And at best, I think sometimes we just talk about God like we talk about the last great movie we saw. Oh yeah, this is really great, really great. Or we talk about God like he's, at, this, at worst, we talk about God like he's a bag of Cheetos. Like, oh yeah, God is so good, mm. But you see, <laughs> When we, talk, when we think about God, when we talk about God, <clears throat> we're talking about the God of Ezekiel. We're talking about the God of Revelation. God is way beyond what we imagine him to be, way beyond what we can fathom. But get this, when you pray for God to help you, you're praying to the God of Ezekiel. When you pray for God to heal you, you're praying to the God of Revelation. 
When, when, you, when you are praying and asking God to intervene, God, stop the killing. Bring an end to all the violence, all the injustice, all the oppression, all the wars. You're praying to almighty, all-powerful God who could, with one word, stop. Bring it all to an end. When you think about the picture of God described in these two passages, it's easy to see what God tells us about himself uh, through the prophet Isaiah. You know this passage. God speaks to Isaiah and he says, for my thoughts aren't your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Now you know that verse, but put it in connection to these scriptural descriptions of this huge, massive, incomprehensible God. <laughs> Sometimes we're like, <clears throat> well, I just don't understand God. I don't understand why he let this happen. I've said that. I, I, I don't understand why he won't give me what I need. I don't understand why he's not making things better. Well, of course you don't understand He's not like you. He's not like us. The real why question is why do you think you could understand an incomprehensible God? His thoughts, his ways are higher than the farthest star is from us. Is higher than the farthest star is away from us. He says he's incomprehensible, he's unfathomable. God says the same thing to Job. As Job is struggling to understand why God let all these bad things happen to him, God says to Job in Job 11, Job, can you fathom the mysteries of God? No. Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? No. <laughs> they are higher than the heights of the heaven. What can you do? Well, nothing compared to God. They are deeper than the depths of the grave. What can you really know? Nothing compared to God. Psalm 145.3 says the same thing. Great is the Lord and most worthy to be praised. His greatness no one can fathom. That means our why questions. We can't fathom God's ways and his thoughts and why he does what he does. There's not one thing about God that we can completely understand. If, if we see God rightly, we will understand that we can't possibly understand all there is to know about him. Even the, <laughs> even the simplest things about God are hard to understand. Even his name, just his name. We can't even fathom what God's name is. You remember that scene with uh, Moses and God at the burning bush? And you know, Moses comes to God and he says, well, I, after this, Credible experience. He, Moses says, I got to go back and tell your people about what I've seen here. And, and they're going to ask me, well, what God are you talking about? Are you talking God of Egypt, like the Nile God, the cat God, the sun God, the moon God, the star God, whatever. They're going to ask me, they're going to ask me what your name is. What shall I tell them? What's your name? Now, remember that? It was in Exodus chapter 3, uh, verse 13. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, and, and, and then they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am 
has sent you, sent me to you. Your God's name is a sentence. You, you, you know anybody whose name is a sen- sentence? I mean, no, no, it's, it, it's like here's Jason and Jim and Jane and Mike and Sarah. God, I am who I am. And in Hebrew, it looks like this. Aye, asher, aye. Aye, asher, aye. I am who I am. Now, that's the name of God when he tells us his name. First person. When you speak his name, if somebody asks you what God's name is, you would say, he is that he is. That's third person. So depending on who's speaking, God's name is either I am or he is. It looks like this. Uh, I am, he is, looks like this. And we think it's pronounced Yahweh. Uh, (laughs) Is any of this easy? And we're just talking about his name. His name is complex in its simplicity and it's simple in its complexity. That's another paradox. Nothing about God is simple. Why this name? Why is this name so important? Why is it so hard to get your mind around I am that I am? Well, because it defines who God is. It defines his essence. It defines his being. He's the ground of all being. I am that I am. And his name describes his eternality, his infinity, his immutability, which is his unchanging nature. Christian, here is your God, high and lifted up, awesome in power and might, nothing in the entire universe, no created thing is like him. No one can understand him completely. No, he is unfathomable, incomprehensible, indescribable, and he is to be worshiped and adored and celebrated and honored and proclaimed for the great God that he is. Yes, here is your God. Now, I would bet that some of you about now are saying, Charlie, I, I hear what you're saying, and I believe everything you said about God is right, and it's true, and it's accurate, but Charlie, that God, the one you're describing, intimidates me. That God it seems so far above me. He feels distant to me. I mean, how do I relate to a God like that? And that's a great question. So let's go back to his name for a minute. I love how Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke talks about God's name. Now, I've had the pleasure of being taught by uh, Dr. Waltke, and there is no better Old Testament scholar, Hebrew scholar, than Bruce Waltke, and he's a fine man, very fine man. Here's what he says about God's name, the I am that I am. Waltke says, in its function... God's name suggests his pragmatic presence, meaning God's name is not just incomprehensible for the sake of being incomprehensible. No, it has a pragmatic side to it. In its function, God's name suggests his pragmatic presence. This, now he's going to explain it, this sense of God's being can be captured in the English phrase, I am who I am for you. I am who I am for you. His simplicity shows that there is no variability. He's unchangeable. And that means that God is dependable and he can be counted on. 
What, what's God like? What's God's name? I am who I am for you. He is who he is for us. This awesome God of Ezekiel and Revelation is for you. He is for you. All that power and might and almightiness is for you. And to show us that, he became one of us. To show us that he, was, that he is for us, he came to be with us. Scripture, Philippians 2, tells us that Jesus existed in the form of God, but he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be held on to. Now, do you understand what that means in light of everything we've talked about this morning? Jesus, that the God, the God that John saw in Revelation was Jesus himself. So, John saw this magnificent picture of Jesus. Jesus in his glorified being. Jesus, oh, I can't, uh, in the throne room of heaven. The, Jesus as he existed before and after his mission to planet earth. John saw that. Even though he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be held on to. Equality with the God of Ezekiel and Revelation. You see what he said? He left that. He, and he emptied himself, not meaning he quit being divine. God just added humanity to his divinity. And we got, and, and, and Peter, James, and John got a glimpse of that on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus' flesh was pulled back and they were able to get a look at that. So, so, so this Jesus, even though he existed in the form of God, he emptied himself by being made in the likeness of men, meaning that Jesus gave up this, and you understand this is, no picture can do justice to what Ezekiel saw, but you gotta get out, you've gotta get otherworldly in here. Like you can't just, it's not like God is like one of us, no, it's otherworldly. Jesus gave up this to become this. Nope. Yes. <laughs> That's Christmas. That's the incarnation. Jesus became one of us. The Jesus John saw, that Ezekiel saw, became human, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the Father's will by allowing himself to be crucified on the cross, and for that reason, God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name. What name is that? I am. What does Jesus say? I am the first and the last. I am the Alpha and the Omega. You remember Jesus said this, he said something to the religious leaders of his day that literally caused the tops of their head to explode. He said, before Abraham was, I am. He was claiming to equality with God. He was claiming oneness with Yahweh. He was claiming to be one and the same with Yahweh. And God bestowed upon him the name he shared before the foundation of the world, and God highly exalted him, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. On that day, every knee will not bow to this Jesus, but to this Jesus. Again, I, I hesitate to use pictures, but you gotta get otherworldly here to get your mind around the magnitude of what we're... What, what scripture is trying to get across to us. The amazing thing, 
the mind-blowing thing, the take-your-breath-away thing is this Jesus who is a relational God, who is a personal God, who wants to have a relationship with us. You see this? In Jesus, the incomprehensible God took on human flesh and became sensible. It, you could touch him, senses, the five senses. You could touch him. You could hear him. You could smell him. You, he became sens, sensible. And in Jesus, the high and lifted up God became gentle and lowly. And in Jesus, the God who is infinitely powerful became weak and hungry. In Jesus, the in, God and the invisible God became visible. In Jesus, the God who is indescribable became someone that we could talk about and describe. In Jesus, the unknowable God became known, became knowable. You see, we can't fully understand him, but we can know him. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Sure you do. There's a difference between knowing someone and understanding someone, right? All married couples know this. Like, I know my wife. Do I understand my wife? Mm -mm, no, I do not. And I've been married to her for 45 years, July 23rd. I still don't understand her. And my wife knows me, and she can't understand. No, that's not true. She can. Uh, my wife has got me pretty much figured out. Uh, totally. Like, she totally understands me. But there's a difference between knowing and understanding. Like, I know, I know that this is black. But I don't understand how the rods and cones at the back of my retina send messages through the optic nerve to my brain that tells my brain, this is not yellow, this is black. I don't understand the physiological mechanics of it, but I know it. I know it. And I don't have to completely understand God to know him. I don't have to fully understand God to trust him. In fact, did you know in knowing to know God is very simple. He set it up that way. We can know God by actually starting with ourselves. Like, for example, like if, uh, if, since we're in the realm of science fiction, if you were standing in front of a 20-foot giant person, now, if you were standing in front of this 20-foot giant, would you, would you try to stand as tall as you could to try to prove that somehow you're equal in stature to that person? No, you know, you'd be like, you know, you'd be looking up at that person. See, the first thing we need to do to know God is we start by looking at ourselves and we understand how big and magnificent and awesome God is, and that humbles us to say, God, I'm a mess. I am a mess. You're great. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm a mess. I, I have failed so many times. I have so many faults. I have, I've sinned. I'm ashamed. I carry all that. I'm a mess. And, and that's, that's first. And then you, you come to him and you say, but I see you in a different way than I've ever seen you before. I can see you that you're bigger, way bigger than I've ever imagined, but you're relational. But, and I don't understand how that works exactly. I, I, believe, I believe that you want to relate to me and I, and I want to relate to you. And you, and, and you say to God, the only way that that's gonna happen is if you do something, if you make it happen. I can't make that happen. And 
and God has done something to make it happen. That's what I just talked about, talking about Jesus, that he, almighty God, became a human being, and he added to his divine nature, a human nature, which is also incomprehensible to us. But then he willingly died on the cross, and on that cross, Jesus essentially took the, all the mess, all my mess, all your mess, all our failures, all our faults, all our sin, all our shame. He took it all away that so we can have that relationship with God. And then he rose from the dead. And we can have a brand new life with God both now and forever. Like it's when you, when you just talk to God like that, when you say those things to God, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, just like that you step into a relationship with him. Just like that, you can begin to get to know him. And if you haven't taken that step, just now or after the service or sometime this afternoon, just talk to God like that. Put your faith in Christ. Now, I can't understand how all that works. I can't understand how he does that. It's beyond my ability to understand because it all happens through his spirit. His spirit makes it happen. That's supernatural. That's some kind of work that's beyond what I can understand. But it happens. I know it happened personally. How many of you in this room know this personally? Raise your hand. Yeah, yeah. We know it. We don't understand it. You see, the start of, starting point to knowing God is knowing you'll never be able to fully know or understand all there is to know about him. But in Jesus... God has made himself known to us in a personal way, in a life-giving way, in a sin-forgiving, shame-removing way. I love how Jesus puts it in John 17, 3. And I'm going to put this just a little bit different. It's my paraphrase. This would be what Jesus would be saying if he was here. If this was first person, he would say, this is eternal life, that you might know God as the only true God through me, whom the Father has sent. It's just that easy to put your faith and trust in him. Now, um, one of the things, one of the ways that we think about worship here at Fellowship Greenville is our, our favorite definition, so to speak, is that uh, worship is our response to God's revelation, meaning Worship is our response to what God reveals to us about himself. And as we focus this whole summer on these attributes of God and the character of God, man, this is the richest ground for worship that there is. And so we're going to do something a little bit different this summer, and that is we're going to build more worship time after these messages to allow us to respond to what we have uh, learned about God, what he's revealed to us in this, these messages. Now, I do understand that some of you, because you serve in different places in the church, it, it's, I do understand how you have to get up and leave uh, to go to your place of service. I, I get that. But if you're just trying to get a jump on traffic because you're going to get out a little bit early. I want to invite you to stay to the end of our worship time and let these amazing, awesome truths about our great and gracious God lead you to respond to him with the worship and praise 
and honor that he so rightly deserves. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, you're an amazing, awesome, majestic, unfathomable, indescribable, invisible, immortal, all-wise, all-loving, all-powerful God. God, help us to see you as much, much bigger than maybe we've seen you in the past or maybe we had that big God perspective, but it's kind of just, we just kind of drifted away from it. Restore to us eyes that see and hearts that respond to your loving greatness and your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen.